This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn more. I'm not sure how to describe this message, but this comes out of uh, me laying in bed in the middle of the night and being unable to sleep. I think it was that uh, that storm. I don't know if you guys remember that storm this last week where in the middle of the night it was, uh, you know, lightning. So it was lighting up the house. And, uh, but it was a beautiful time. And sometimes, you know, you can get rather uh, frustrated when you can't sleep in the middle of the night. And I've tried to learn ever since having little kids uh, when these things would happen and we'd be awakened in the night, feeding in the night, to embrace that as opposed to complain about it and to allow it to be a, a time where God can speak and I can speak to him and we can cultivate that relationship. And that's what I was doing the other night. And this, I'd say the kernel of this, which I'm still working on in my life, because most of it isn't for us as a group. Most of it is just for me personally. And yet there's, there's something in this message which I think is very, very important for us as the body. I'd say for our culture. Uh, we live in a culture which is really struggling with identity. It is, str- it is confused over things that most of us as conservative Christians would say there's nothing confusing about that. And yet it is a genuine confusion. But that confusion isn't being brought about by God. It's the absence of God. Because God doesn't breed confusion. Uh, he brings clarity and he shines light. And so when the light is quenched, when the light is put out, darkness reigns, and in that darkness is confusion. And so there needs to be a compassion on our part for a culture that is genuinely confused, even though for most of us, we're like, that is so ridiculous that you would be confused over that. This is so obvious. And yet never, uh, you know, for us, the fact that things are clear and concise to us is a gift and some of it's just our upbringing because we were brought up in truth and that's a rare thing these days and so that's uh, the edges of my message but I I really like uh, the the graphic that goes with this that Annie uh, got for it and that's lessons from the storm and so again it was in the midst of a storm that I even had this thought, and, and I was chewing on this thought, but ironically, it's not just that I had a lesson in the midst of the storm, it's that the storm itself is a lesson. So when we were here on Wednesday night, it, some of you were here, and so you know exactly what I mean, we had, uh, it was still in the midst of our alumni extension week, so we had some alumni here, and but then the local body was present, and it was 8 o'clock, which is usually when we finish, and I made some statement about how, you know, at 8 o'clock, hey, you know, unless God is making it clear that we go forward, I just want to honor all of you by just saying, hey, it's, it will be done now. And usually all of us know if we're supposed to continue. And even in, then I, I finished with a prayer, and as I was praying, all these phones went off. You, you guys know what those phones, I, I don't remember the noise, but it's, you know, it's one of those types of very irritating noises. And what it means is you have a reason to be concerned. 
there is some problem in the world that you need to take note of. And I'm really not a fan of that sound. I am intrigued by what technology can do, that somehow our phones can give off this, you know, to let us know that there's a problem. And there was a threat of not just a storm, but a storm that could kill. I mean, this is, this is quite extreme what was coming up on our phones. And that is three-inch hail was coming to our area to visit us. And so if you are outdoors, get indoors and quick. You know, this can kill people and animals. I don't remember the exact thing because I, I didn't uh, write it down. But it was one of those, you know, grave threats, okay? And some of you got it on your phone and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Three-inch hail? Okay, now, you know, hail is bad enough, but you add three inches of girth to a, uh, a chunk of hail and you've got yourself a baseball and something maybe even heavier than a baseball. That's, that's something that can do damage. And what was neat is what took place in here because we decided that we would take a stand and that we would make a declaration that our God is greater. And we prayed for about a half hour. Of course, to go out in that didn't sound very inviting either. And so it was a good excuse for us to stay here a little longer and continue to pray. But I really enjoyed that half hour. I just wanted to make note of that. But there was one prayer that stood out to me in that half hour that I want to put up on the screen because it's critical to what I'm saying now. Oh, first of all, I need to introduce the three-inch hail. I forgot to click on this. The threat of the damaging storm. But here's the prayer. Lord, may, we, may that which is currently threatening to harm be transformed into your instrument of life. And it's the principle of a storm. A storm can't, I mean, when you live in arid Colorado and your lawn is dying for lack of moisture, when you hear that there's going to be storms today, you get excited. In other words, storms should excite us. However, when you hear that that storm is bringing three-inch hail, uh, that isn't exciting to us because that's, that's something that could bring life, but instead it's bringing damage. And that principle of a storm, which it has two possibilities, it could bring life or it could bring damage. And as a result, some of us have mixed reviews on what a storm is. Authority over the winds and waves, the superintendent over all threats. Now, that's sort of a giveaway of what I'm hinting at, of Jesus, you know, as, as uh, the disciples and Jesus are in that boat and the, uh, the great storm is taking place around them. This, this storm was such that it, it says that their lives were in jeopardy, which is interesting because I would say I could understand why they were concerned, but these are fishermen. These guys live on the lake, and so for them, I'm, you know, just a storm on the lake can't be that big of a deal, right? However, they were not doing so well, and they were panicking, and they were trying to wake up Jesus. Jesus is asleep in the midst of that, which is, again, one of the funny uh, side elements to the story. But the part of the story that is significant for us today is that Jesus is going to rise up and calm that storm. In other words, to recognize that there is a storm... But there is one who is greater than the storm, who, who controls the storms. And so that that storm can actually be useful to teach us or to help us or to aid us as opposed to destroy us. And so on Wednesday night, we received the threat that a storm was going to destroy us. 
And I, I've had to go through insurance companies because of hail damage enough times in my life to know that I really don't want to do that again, right? And so that was what was going on in my head, and I had to relinquish. And that was one of the things that was going on in my head is that, okay, Lord, if you want me to go through an, an insurance claim afresh, I freshly yield uh, all of my vehicles to you right now, and you can have them. And that's important, but to recognize that there is one who is greater than, than the storm, that can calm it, that can steer it away. We asked very specifically for that uh, tornado to be steered away, or it wasn't a tornado, it was, that was in my head because we've had hail, then tornadoes, but that that hailstorm would be steered away from us here. And it was, I mean, God answered that prayer. But there is a God who is over all of those storms. Matthew 8, 27, the men marveled, saying, who can this be that even the winds and the waves obey him? That all storms obey our God. So we have this idea of a storm, that it has the potential to bring good and blessing, or it has the potential to bring harm. Our God is greater than that storm. He is over that storm. The places of safety are no more. Where can safety be found when the safe places are lost? God designed his creation to have certain aspects to it. I mean, even think about the Jewish culture. When, when the Jewish culture uh, is being built by God, he's going to create these cities of refuge. And so there's these safe places, even in the most dire moments, that someone can go. God designed his system, his creation with this, because there are storms. There are going to be evils. And so as he's building this culture, uh, uh, known uh, you know, as the, the culture of Israel, he is going to actually create safe places. But if all the safe places are destroyed, then where can you hide? And so I just want to give three safe places that God designed, but that you'll notice that the enemy has attempted to thwart and destroy. One is marriage. The idea of marriage even is convoluted these days. And it's interesting, you know, when the Supreme Court uh, redefined marriage, uh, the conservative Christian community was in an uproar. We, we couldn't believe the audacity of the Supreme Court to do something that would overwrite, you know, the truth of God's word. However, there's a reason why our culture was even in that crisis in the first place, and that is that we, as those that have the truth, we're not upholding it. And whether or not this is true, I remember hearing a statistic that said that uh, Christians had a higher divorce rate than non-Christians. Now, like I said, whether that's true, even if it was close, it's no wonder why the world would look at it and say, okay, so you believe in the sanctity of marriage and yet look how you treat it. I get it. In other words, I understand why we have these problems because the ones entrusted with the truth have not been shining that light. But marriage is no longer a safe place. In other words, it's not a place where you know that till death, I, this, this marriage will ma maintain its security. Th that's what we should rest in, that that vow means something, that this will go the distance, whether in sickness or in health. Whether we have a lot of money or no money, it makes no difference. This thing is going to last. And that covenantal relationship is of the greatest import. I remember the guy that uh, married Leslie and I. He said, you're going to need to sign this document uh, before I marry you. I was like, well, what's the document? And it released, it, caused, it asked Leslie and I to relinquish the ability to get divorced. I was like, what? 
And so the only thing we could do to handle our, our differences was to mediate them. But divorce was off the table. Now, I don't know if that's actually a legally binding document. You know, I don't know what we actually signed, but it's like, of course, I have no intention of getting divorced. But it's interesting because Leslie and I have gone through our marriage knowing that divorce is not an option. And I would say that's actually one of our secrets. You see, we don't even ponder it. It doesn't even come up. You, you follow me? In other words, what God designed as a whole, the enemy wants to destroy. He wants to sabotage it. That's his game. Because he wants to remove what we could call a safe place. When you're entrusting yourself to a spouse, it's a very, very vulnerable thing. And you want to know that they're going to keep their end of that covenant. And yet, we live in a world that is fractured, and many of us know how vulnerable and how painful that can be. Family is another zone that is supposed to be safe. It's a safe place. In other words, we can trust our family. They have our back, don't they? And instead of family being a safe place, it has become the place of greatest hurt, the, greatest, the place of greatest harm and abuse. A mother's womb, and I could say, need I say more, but that is a place no longer of safety. If there is one person on earth who would protect that little child, it would be that mother. And yet what has happened in our culture is we have convoluted to such a place where now, if you're a baby in a womb, you are in one of the most dangerous places on earth. The storm. It's powerfully equipped to give life, but it doesn't always carry out its job correctly. So just imagine that God's intention for a storm was to bring life. So it's like, I'm going to fill that cloud with a whole bunch of rain, and then we're going to move that rain over here and dump it on this field, and so we're going to bring in a harvest. In other words, the way God's system works is that storms bring life, and yet storms, as we all know, can also bring hazards and destruction and death. And I think the reason I'm calling this Lessons from the Storm is because there's a parallel in that with the way that we function. We are designed to be life carriers. And yet oftentimes we can bring harm even though we were designed to bring life. The storm cloud was meant to carry life-giving rain. Instead, it often carries devastating winds, destructive hail, scary thunder, and fearsome lightning. So really what I'm getting down to is, even though I haven't hinted at it, I did a good job of sort of covering it up to this point, but it's the role of a father. And when we bring up in our training at Ellerslie, when we bring up fatherhood, it's interesting because we have quite the mix in a, a base of students. There are some that really want to get off the topic quick because it's a place of great sensitivity and hurt. And there's others that have a great delight in that topic. I'm one of them. In other words, I had a great father. And yet, I don't ever want to take that lightly in my life because the importance of that in my life has been significant. And yet, I need to recognize that's not the norm today. And that there's supposed to be a safety in that relationship with a child and a father, and yet that is a place of vulnerability that many of us in this generation have experienced. So what do, what do I say about the father? He's powerfully equipped to give life, but he doesn't always carry out his job correctly. Now, 
what I just described, even for those of us in here that would be godly men, that's still a fairly accurate picture of our fatherhood. In other words, we are designed to give life, and many times we do. However, we also can do this job very incorrectly. And that's part of what I want to touch at, and that's part of the lessons from the storm, is I recognize the vulnerability and that I have as a father, that any of us have as a father, even though we fear God, we love his word, to actually do this job incorrectly. And what are we supposed to do with the fact that we are imperfect? How do we handle that? So an examination of the two. Let's look at the two zones or the two kingdoms. We have, well, I always put the, the bad one over here, darkness and light, even though I have them written backwards up there. John 10.10 10 is going to clarify the difference between the two kingdoms. It's going to say the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. So we'll put that over here. Steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus is going to separate and de delineate a difference in, the, in his mission. But he has come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Now what happens to many of us because of our experience with a father is that we have a tendency to mix the two. And when we think of God, we oftentimes take behaviors of the enemy and incriminate God with them. Even though Jesus is going to come and make it very clear what his agenda is. It's different than the thief. He's not like the thief. He has come to give life and that more abundant. So we have two characters here that I'm going to introduce you to and sort of create a contrast. One is we know as Satan. And even the word Satan comes from a verb, it's, it's an action, which means to lie in wait. But this is the contrary one, the adversary, the enemy, the accuser. And what he does is he lies in wait to pounce, to destroy. He is seeking to devour. And this is the exact opposite behavior of our God who is seeking to bless So these are just a few descriptions of this one known as Satan. He's the thief, John 10.10. 10. The father of lies, John 8.44. The murderer, John 8.44. The devourer, Malachi 3.11. The deceiver, Revelation 12.9. The tempter, Matthew 4.5 and 1 Thessalonians 3.5. The destroyer, Revelation 9.11. The accuser, Revelation 12.10. The enemy, Matthew 13.39. The adversary, 1 Peter 5.8. And the devil, Matthew 4.1. We're going to contrast that with Jesus, who is God in the flesh, the resurrection and the life, the mighty man of salvation. So here's just a few scriptures to describe him. He's the creator of all things, Colossians 1.16. Just think about the contrast there. One is trying to break down the creation. Jesus is the one creating. The upholder of all things, Hebrews 1.3. The life, 1 John 1.2. He that lives Revelation 1.18, the prince of life, Acts 3.15, the tree of life, Revelation 2.7, the bread of life, John 6.35, the word of life, 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning and the ending, Revelation 1.8, the savior of the world, 1 John 4.14, the good shepherd that laid down his life, John 10.11, a strength to the needy in distress, Isaiah 25.4. 
The word that was made flesh, John 1.14, a child born, Isaiah 9.6, the intercessor, Hebrews 7.25, faithful and true, Revelation 19.11, the truth, John 14.6, the resurrection, John 11.25, a quickening spirit, 1 Corinthians 15.45, a friend that loves at all times, Proverbs 17.17, 17, my helper, Hebrews 13.6, my healer, Luke 9.11, my keeper, John 17.12, my feeder, Ezekiel 34.23, my all in all. Colossians 3.11. So let's look at the contrast between these. Now, those of you that have you know, gone through the names of God as we do them here at Ellerslie know there's a lot more that we could put up there. However, I'm very specifically choosing certain qualities to contrast. And so I want us to see a contrast because this really helps in our soul and in our understanding. Satan is the thief while God is the giver. We see the difference between those behaviors. One is taking, the other is giving. Satan is the liar, God is the truth. Satan is the murderer, God is the healer. Satan is the devourer, God is the upholder. Satan is the deceiver, God is the faithful and true. Satan is the tempter, God is the keeper. Satan is the destroyer, God is the creator. Satan is the accuser, God is the intercessor. Satan is the enemy, God is the friend. Satan is the adversary, God is the savior. So here's another way of looking at it. And I'm gonna build on this. The reason I'm giving you all this is to sort of begin to create the contrast because as a father, I esteem Jesus. I esteem the behavior of God. I esteem the nature of God. And I want to exude that and to exhibit that in everything I do. However, there are behaviors that I'm vulnerable to that are very unlike God. And when I participate in one of those behaviors that is unlike God, and my kids witness it or my kids experience the brunt of it, how does that affect them, and what is my role in even creating a remedy for that? So listen to this. In other words, God is not a thief. God is not a liar. God is not a murderer. God is not a devourer. God is not a deceiver. God is not a tempter. God is not a destroyer. God is not an accuser. God is not our enemy. God is not our adversary. So when you clarify who God is, you also can clarify who God is not. And so there are behaviors in our life that are not like God. And we are responsible for those behaviors. It does not mean that there's not a remedy for those behaviors if we exhibit them. There is. It's called the shed blood of Jesus. And he is merciful and he is forgiving. However, the impact of those behaviors on our children is very real, which means we need to participate in clarifying the distinctions between God's behavior and the behavior I just had or I have had in my life towards my kids. And this is a very, very important thing. The earthly father. He works as the introduction to the heavenly father. Now this seems like a very unfortunate position to be in as a father. It's like, are you serious? So I'm like the debut. I'm like the one who, it's like the trailer for uh, the heavenly father. And it's like, you will recognize him because he will be like, and then they point at you. You're like, like that? Uh, 
And, but that is how a child is introduced to their heavenly father is in and through this relationship that they share with an earthly father. And that's a beautiful thing and also a rather scary thing. John the Baptist is going to be what's called a friend of the bridegroom. He's going to be the predecessor or the preview. And so he is going to set in motion a pattern. He's going to say, the one that follows me is greater. And that is, in a sense, our role too. That we are like a John the Baptist as a father, that we are not the Savior, the one who follows us is greater. And yet we are supposed to be rather impressive. That still the role of a father is not to say, oh, well, I'm not God, therefore, burp, scratch. You know, I can behave in my lowest possible way. But to actually recognize that our role is very significant and that God wants to equip us for it so that we can have the authority of a storm, have the potential to bless as a storm has, and to give life instead of three-inch hail. So when we realize that we are that introductory picture to our children of the Heavenly Father, that can create the response of, yikes, what do I do when I fall short? So this isn't just if I ever fall short, it's when you fall short. And one of the important things about the kingdom of heaven is we have been saved not because of our perfection. We've been saved because of his perfection and our confidence in his ability to save. So Eric is made new in Christ Jesus, but being made new in a sense at the beginning means I have new clothing. I am justified because of his perfect righteousness. I am clothed in his righteousness. As a result, I have access into the throne of grace where I may receive now inside of this body the Holy Spirit. However, underneath that clothing of perfection is a very real work in process. Eric is not perfected in his behavior, in his attitudes. He is being perfected. And that's an important thing to delineate, and it's very, very significant for a child to understand that. It's important for a child to recognize, even from my mouth as a father, that this is a work that is yet unfinished. God is working on me, and he is bettering me day after day. He is convicting me of things that need to change, and part of that demonstration is that I am willing to humble myself and acknowledge that that was incorrect behavior. This is the behavior of the enemy. This is the behavior of God. Oh, kids, which one do you think I just participated in? And it doesn't feel very good as a father to have to acknowledge that your behavior was <clears throat> more like the devil's than it was like God's. And yet that's very, very important for your children to recognize because they are having an introduction to their God in and through how you handle your weaknesses, to recognize that you are not the Savior. And that's what John the Baptist is going to say, too. Declarations of imperfection. I've been trying to figure out a, a, a phrase for this, but that's what this is. It's like, I have declarations of imperfection that my children need to understand. God is, I am not. You see, John the Baptist, when he comes, is going to make a statement that most of us miss. I mean, we hear it, but we don't understand the significance of it. There's this phrase in the Greek, ego I may, 
which is basically I am. And Jesus is going to say it over and over and over again. And John, the, the gospel of John, is going to capture it and stick it on the page. Before Abraham was, I am, says Jesus. Whoa, what's he saying? Well, when the Jews pick up rocks to stone him, you can understand what he's saying. He's declaring himself to be the I am. And that's a big statement. That's God-like statements. They call it blasphemy. I mean, who is this man to say that? Well, he just happens to be God, so he's not lying about it. But the one thing we never say is that we are. We never say the, the phrase, ego I may. We would never say that about ourselves, and that's very, very important in our fatherhood. In other words, we need to know who is God and who we are in contrast. We have a, a crucial role as fathers to play, but we are not God. And it is not our responsibility to be God. So God is, I am not. And John the Baptist says it this way, I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. And that is our role. Our children need to understand that we are not the Christ, we are not God, but we have been sent before him to prepare the way in their souls for them to see him, for them to know him. The incompleteness of the first. So I always divide up things in first and seconds. It's not that I do, the Bible does. I mean, even the Old Testament in the New Testament. But you have, the, you have Adam and then you have the last Adam, Jesus. But the whole Bible is broken up into twos and just like darkness and light, just like death and life. However, if you were to look at fatherhood, you would say there's a first father in everyone's life, and there's a second father. And this first father position that many of us in here have inherited, <laughs> and whether or not if we were to grade ourselves, usually we're pretty hard on ourselves as fathers. We're, very few fathers compliment themselves until someone starts criticizing them, then they start pointing out all the good things they've done. You know, if someone's hard on them, then they, they try and measure up and come up with some reason of why they haven't been that bad. You know, because there's all sorts of other fathers to compare yourself with where you have done better than them. And so you want them to at least recognize that. However, the incompleteness of the first. You see, in the kingdom pattern, the first is not the solution. The first is incomplete. It's the second one that finishes. It's the second one that fills in all the gaps. You see, Adam is unable in his own humanness to be able to please God. It's only Jesus, the second man, that is able to please God. And we are born in Adam. We are a derivative of his frailty. And yet, when we believe in Jesus, we become finished in that sense. We are made righteous. However, underneath that righteousness is a lot of frailty still. And when we function in our fatherhood, we are functioning in an incomplete fatherhood. In other words, we're not, we have everything we need for life and godliness and everything to love our kids well. That's not to diminish that. But we are not the savior of our child. Our job is to lead our children to the perfect. And so the earthly father is like the law. The law is a first. And the second is grace. What saves you? Well, it's not the law that saves you. Does that mean the law is bad? No, no. The law is very good. The law is perfect. The law is righteousness. 
However, in and of itself, it can't save. And so the law, the earthly father is like the law. It is good, but it was not intended to save. And so for us as fathers to know this and to understand this is very, very important. But it's not just the fathers. It's those of us that have fathers. One of the reasons why this is standing out to me in such a significant thing is I have so many students that come up to me, and just in the past week I've had a rash of them, that make statements like, God has been bringing things to the surface, and I just recognize that I've always struggled with abandonment because of my father, and I've needed God to heal that and to restore something in me. And then you'll hear something like, yeah, and I've had such extreme identity issues in my life because of my earthly father. Or I've never felt value. I've never felt like I was worth anything because of my father's words towards me. And I hear these things, and the thing that is always going through my head is, what would my kids say? (laughs) Do my kids have similar issues? Boy, I don't want my kids to have that. And so that's the key, the lessons from the storm. God, what do you want me to do? Because I, am, I feel so incomplete as a father. I don't feel like I can do this the way I'm supposed to, at least. I know I have everything I need in you to do it, but I feel like I'm falling short too much and this is going to injure my kids and my kids will not turn out robust and strong unless I get this together. And I think this is the lessons from the storm, is understanding that as a father... I have an incredible opportunity to influence my children, but it's not just through my perfect behavior, it's also through my imperfect behavior. That when I leverage my imperfect behavior and I show them the distinction between my behavior that I just had and God's behavior, and I lead them to God in and through that and humble myself to show that God takes even the imperfect behavior and applies grace to it to make it redeemable and powerful in our lives, that that is part of my role is not to be perfect, even though, boy, do I esteem that, but to, in my imperfection, leverage even that in my fathering. So Galatians 3.19, talking about the law, the first, it says, what purpose then does the law serve? What, What purpose does the, you know, if the law is unable to save, what good is it? Why doesn't God just skip it? And the same is true with fatherhood. God, why don't you just skip fatherhood and bring us straight to the heavenly father? Why do we have this place filler down here? Why do we have a friend of the bridegroom? Why do we have one calling out in the wilderness, you know, in a camel skin loincloth? Why do we have that guy? Why do we have the law? What is the good of that? But the law is serving a purpose. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. You see, there is something about the law that is going to drive to the service our need of a Savior. So when it says that it was added because of transgressions, that doesn't, isn't the best sales pitch for fatherhood. It's like, boy, yeah, every kid is going to love their father because what's their father going to do? He's going to show them where they're wrong. And yes, fathers are very good at that because but what a father does is it's going to show them their need. It's like, here's the pattern of behavior, and when you keep that, there is honor. When you fail in that, there is discipline. And boy, it's rough being a father because of that, right? But what you're showing, if you show it rightly with mercy and grace, you're actually showing your child that they need help. 
they need help in the interior part of their life. That it's not just an exterior morality, it's not just an exterior behavior of excellence, it's an interior behavior. That they need assistance and they need an elevated game, but that, only, that doesn't come from daddy or from my correction. My correction is to lead them to their needs so they cry out and say, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And that's what a father is supposed to do and that's what the law's entire role is. Galatians 3, 23 through 24 before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Sounds a little like parenting, doesn't it? Kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor, another translation, schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So the law is a temporary teacher that is there to prep the soul to recognize the need for faith in Christ. And you could summarize fatherhood that way. That's an oversimplification because a father serves all sorts of purposes in a, in a child's life. But their primary purpose is to prepare them for faith in Christ. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the end of the law is what? Jesus. The end of all fatherhood is what? Jesus. If a father is built the way God intended it to, even if we be imperfect, the end result is Jesus. The dangers of the first. So this earthly fatherhood thing has some precarious dimensions to it. You see, there's a lot that I can do to bungle this. It's like I've given a football and God says, run, the goal line's there, and it's very easy to drop that ball. And so as a result, I need to know the dangers. It's like you see that linebacker, uh -huh, the one that's is grunting right now and headed straight for you. You're going to want to avoid that uh, lest he, you know, hit it, his helmet hit that ball and the ball squirt out the other side. In other words, there are dangers on this field of battle. And as a father, I need to be very, very aware that to get this ball into the end zone, I have an enemy who wants to Hinder that, harm that, stop that. So the dangers of the first, this is the key danger. This is the linebacker that's wanting to knock the ball out of our grip. It's when we don't acknowledge that our earthly fatherhood is incomplete. And when we try and justify, when we say, I'm good enough, all of that, that's actually one of our vulnerabilities. But a father usually struggles with the issue of humility. It's, that's one of the hardest dimensions for us is to acknowledge that we are incomplete and that we are a work in process. Acts 15.5. This is sort of what happens when you don't acknowledge your incompletion. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and, them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So it's sort of like that. When you're one of the believing sort of fathers, that still is going to believe that the law or that you, the first, is sufficient, then you have a tendency to overpress that. And you have a tendency to have too heavy of a hand instead of transferring them to the kingdom of heaven and allowing God to carry those weights as well. Key battlegrounds where a father must clarify. So this is just a, a quick list. I'm sure this list could be a lot longer. A child's identity. In a world where identity is so confused, a father, even in his incompleteness and his imperfection, 
is entrusted with a job, and that is to bring that clarity. To bring the clarity between what is the devil and what is God, and to separate the two. And if that father behaves like the devil, he's quick to acknowledge it and say, that was incorrect behavior. And your God would never behave that way. And, but in regards to identity, that's a very critical thing that needs to come from a father to establish position. In other words, it's not just like, you are a man or you are a woman, though that is incredibly important to be spoken by a father because it's an issue of identity, but most importantly, who is Jesus and that he desires you. He loves you and he wants you to be found in him and to be grafted into his lineage so that you go from just being a child of Eric to being a child of the Most High God. And your identity is ultimately supposed to be found in Christ, not just in being a looty kid. And yet, being a looty kid is a placeholder of identity where there needs to be security, there needs to be uh, care, there needs to be protection, which is helping understand what it means to be under God's care and protection. Value and preciousness. What I'm giving in this list are all the things that are usually missing in our modern day because of the lack of fatherhood and the lack of clarity through fatherhood, even in the church. Most students that come here that are struggling with these things grew up in the church. And so ironically, this isn't just a problem with our culture, our society, it's a problem within our ranks. And it's of critical importance that these are things that we are communicating from our fatherhood to our children. Value and preciousness. Do we even know our value? Do we recognize what it means that the shed blood of Jesus was given for us, but also them? That we know how to communicate value and preciousness. That I cannot think of anything more valuable or anything more precious than a human life. Because Jesus Christ gave up his life, and I cannot think of anything more valuable than the life of Jesus. And he gave up his life to procure, to purchase that. Hope and future. Especially in a time like, remember 2020. I don't know if any of you guys remember 2020. Uh, but 2020, it was interesting the effects that that had upon kids. And where they felt like the world was coming to an end. And that they had no future and no hope. But to speak into that life, future and hope, even when the world is crumbling around, because there is always future and hope. For those that believe, there is always future and hope. And as it says to the Proverbs 31 woman, she smiles at the days to come. And this is an attitude that needs to be cultivated because of the confidence of a father, the faith of a father. It speaks into absolute darkness and sees a beautiful future. And that needs to be conveyed. Mistakes and imperfection. There are certain qualities that a father can have where they like everything clean. They like everything orderly. This is just sort of some classic fatherhood propensities. And when they're not, they have a tendency to make it clear that it's not. And so as a result, I mean, I've talked with many fathers who teach me. It's like, oh, and I teach my child how to, you know, coil the... Uh, you know, the, the rope or, you know, the, the hose, and there's a certain way to do it, a certain way you don't do it, right? There's a way you mow the, the lawn, the lines are straight, and you, you know, you, it, this is all stuff I, I talk about too. And I don't know if it's just a father thing or it's just the type of fathers I hang out with, right? And yet, 
there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. And if a child grows up making mistakes, it also is important for a father to clarify that he too makes mistakes. In other words, in that process of training a child in how to handle the high standards of pursuit of excellence, to also identify himself in the child position is equally important. And so, does God bring us into the kingdom because we mow the lawn with straight lines? No, he does not. And I think we all know that. And so as a result, it's important for a father to clarify the difference. Because a child, though that seems totally obvious, you know, it's like, of course you don't end up in heaven because you do this right, but when you're in my house, you will do it right. And so as a result, to clarify and make those things distinct is also important. Because I don't think there's anything wrong about training your children for excellence. You know, when someone's learned to play the piano, you don't say, yeah, that sounded great, if it didn't, right? You correct it, and you correct it, and you keep practicing, you keep practicing, that's, what, that's where excellence comes from. But how do you handle mistakes? And there are certain children that grow up very hard on themselves because their parents were very hard on them for their mistakes, and they didn't offer the grace along with it. It's like a lubricant to the excellence. Abandonment. Now, whether or not that's a normal thing, this is something that has come up multiple times. You know, we have a lot of adopted kids uh, in our church body, and these are real things that need to be spoken into because there is a distinction. The enemy always wants to create destruction and hazards, and he wants to break apart families. God is one that always keeps. He holds. He's in a covenant relationship, and he will never leave, never forsake. And this quality of God needs to be clearly introduced to a child. Words spoken, attitudes portrayed, hailstorms of fury, winds of hurt. When a, a father overreacts and instead of bringing life to the situation, brings a three-inch uh, hailstone, what needs to happen? And this is part of what has been going through my mind is what is a father's responsibility just to say, well, you know what, I had some hailstones hit me when I was young and I turned out fine, or to actually go in and clarify that hailstone was actually improper. God did not send it. That was something that I sent, and it was not in agreement with God. And make it right. If we have sent hailstones, now you could apply this in different ways too, guys, because some of you are not a father, you're not even a man, right? So you're like, how in the world do I apply all this? The same exact way. I'm using one illustration, and that's of a father, but every single one of us has the same responsibility, and we still are responsible for how we are influencing the world around us. Inconsistencies of belief and practice. There's nothing quite like a father who goes to church and is all righteous and holy at church and then goes home and beats his kids. And I think all of us have heard about that father. And if you're a father in here, I guarantee you, I know you don't want to be that father. But what if you are that father? What if there are inconsistencies where you espouse something here but then contradict it back home? What should you do? Well, I'm just going to say it's critical that you clarify the distinction. This behavior back home was actually wrong. What I'm saying when I'm in church is still correct, but when I come home, I should be living this, not abandoning it. And if I ever abandon that behavior and if I ever show something different, 
I am responsible for that. I am responsible to humble myself and make it right and to seek forgiveness. A father carries a big stick, and as a result, when he wields that big stick incorrectly, it can actually do some great damage. I've likened that stick to the rod a a shepherd has. And a shepherd has a rod which is meant to comfort his sheep. Isn't that ironic that that rod is supposed to comfort? Why? Because it hits that, it taps the fluffy backside of the sheep to show them that they are, that he, he is present, but also to keep them on the narrow way, lest they go into a ditch to the right or a ditch to the left. It comforts them to know that the shepherd is there, that he's watching over them. That's a wonderful quality. And it also bashes in the skull of the wolves. So when a wolf comes, guess what? The sheep goes, yeah, my shepherd has a rod. And as a result, the sheep feel secure. But what if the shepherd takes that same rod and hits the sheep? That's when the violation takes place because that rod was never used to harm the sheep. And yet, it's very easy to do that. And so if you do harm the sheep, what do you do? You need to clarify. These are the things that a father must be clear about as opposed to allow it to ruminate in the heart of a child to say, is that what my God is like? Is that the way my God sees me? Is that the way that my God handles my errors? Is that the way my God handles my misbehavior? Because that's the only conclusion you can come to in such a circumstance. Key questions to ask, and I'm going to add the caveat in front of your child. It's a little scary, I know. Who is God and what is he like? And so what I started with in this message is just clarifying who God is. And that's important in your home to clarify who God is and what he is like. But then also to follow that up with, who am I comparatively? Because I love God, I esteem his truth, and I am being conformed into his image. I am filled with the Holy Spirit, and therefore I have grace to live, and yet Some of my behaviors have been inconsistent in comparison to God's behavior. And it's important for me to clarify that and have my kids even hear that. What am I like in contrast to God? Well, as it says, God cannot lie. I actually could. God will never be proud. He's humble by nature. I actually can be proud. In other words, I am vulnerable and susceptible to behaviors that are opposite of God. He is not vulnerable and susceptible to behaviors that are other than God. And for my kids to understand that is actually helpful to them. What does God think of my fatherly bluster when a hailstone comes raining down upon my children? What does God think about that? Well, he's saddened by it. My kids need to know that. That just because it came from a father who's in a position of authority doesn't mean it was right. Sometimes we can cloak, you know, our behavior because it's, you know, we're we're fathers and we have authority over our family, we're heads over our home. And as a result, we can excuse some of the bluster and some of the hailstorm that can scare our kids. And yet it's critical that we take ownership of that, that that hailstone is an incorrect behavior. God didn't send it. That came from me, whether you could say my frustration, my flesh, my natural man tendencies, and they need to be corrected. And so I'm humbling myself right now and I'm seeking your forgiveness for that hailstone because I know it hurts you. 
And I've also gone to God and I've made that right and I've sought his forgiveness and I know he forgives me as well. God always gives mercy, but it's important that we are ready to clarify where it's needed. How does my fatherly bluster affect you, speaking of the child? And that's important to recognize too, that the child feels understood in the fact that that fatherly bluster was harmful to them. That that clarification actually is healing in itself. Who are you in God's eyes? And who are you in my eyes? Imagine if you were to answer those questions to your kids. Who are you in God's eyes? You are precious. You are worth his son's shed blood. You are the most precious, beautiful thing in all of his creation. He desires you. You are royalty in his kingdom. And then, and who are you in my eyes? You are the most precious thing I know. I would lay down my life for you. To express words of love, care, mercy, kindness. Fathers, we have not been trained in this necessarily. Some of you are better than others in it. Some fathers don't talk at all, right? And so this is not easy stuff. And so if you're in the child position in this, because you could listen to this message from two angles. You could be the child. You could be the wife of, of the father that has, you know, had a little, uh, some hailstones that have been thrown down on the kids. You could be the father. You could be all of those. Well, I don't know if you could be all of those. There was a mixture of gender in there. <laughs> but you could be a mixture of multiple. And you could be encountering this message because maybe you had hailstones rained down upon you growing up. And so I want to address the hailstones being rained down upon us as kids too because that's critical. But I also want us to fully absorb if we are taking that life-giving authority, that life-giving strength that we have been entrusted by God and have not just wet the fields so that they could produce a crop, but that we have harmed the fields with hail. Confessions of an earthly father. I have not done this right appropriately and perfectly. Meanwhile, Jesus has done this right appropriately and perfectly. It's just separating out the two. You see, it doesn't harm your fatherhood to actually say the first line, even though it does feel weakening. It's like, whoa, I don't want my kids taking advantage of that. They're going to be looking at me going, Dad, is this another one of those situations where you didn't do it right appropriately or perfectly? It is. Thank you for bringing that up, son. You know, in other words, you don't really want to set your child up to have a voice in your critique. You know, it's like, uh, thank you very much, uh, little child. But that's the reason we as fathers have a tendency to create an error where what I did was good enough, as opposed to actually that was wrong. And I need to make that right. There are two means by which a child can become healthy. So now let's imagine that we're the child in this situation, because every single one of us are, and some of us had great childhoods, and we have fathers that rained down water upon us, and as a result, we thrived. Some of us maybe had a mixture, where we had some good water seasons, and then every now and then we had the random storm that came through. And I would say that's probably the most accurate for most of us of, what, of how we've grown up. And yet some of us have never seen just healthy storms. And every time a storm cloud brews, our father steps in the room, we want to leave. 
And even a father, if a father knew that, that his children felt that way, it would devastate the father. There isn't a father out there that longs for that, but oftentimes they're trapped. It's a very, very difficult thing when you're trapped in a behavior and you don't know how to get out. And so mercy is a very, very important thing, but when you're a child, you don't oftentimes see big enough to know how to address the storm clouds from a father or the hailstones that come from a father. So there are two means by which a child can become healthy, and that's actually encouraging because for most of us, we think there's one means. I need to have a great father, and that father needs to love me well. That father needs to introduce me to the kingdom of heaven and to the love of Jesus because he demonstrates it with such excellence. And then I'm going to see Jesus, and I'm going to love Jesus because he's going to be like my father, and I'm going to enter into covenant with Jesus, and I'm going to be saved, and he's going to fill me with his Holy Spirit, and then I too can be a great parent. Oh, what a great storyline that is. And that is God's storyline. He designed it. He came up with it. He desired this to be handed generation to generation. But what happens when we fumble? Oh, no. What happens if you didn't get the clear handoff? Is there any hope? Of course there is. So the two means, the primary means, which is what I just described, a great earthly father that leads them to a clear understanding of their heavenly father. Yay! That's what God intends. And for all of us that are in a father position in here, that's what we want to respond to. We want to say yes and amen to that. Lord Jesus, use me. If there's anything in me that is hindering that from taking place in my fatherhood, I pray that you'd remove it. And I humble myself before you and acknowledge I'm an incomplete father, but Lord, begin to complete me. Do what is necessary to fill in those gaps, those weaknesses. Where I give way to frustration, correct me so that I can be marked by grace. Where I'm susceptible to words of, that are harsh. Lord, I want you to grab this tongue and steer it so I can use the, this tongue to bless instead. Yeah, that's the primary means. And as a result, our children have the potential to see Jesus with clarity instead of wander off for a season of their life because they lost sight. They never could grasp the realities of our God. But this is where a lot of us are. Instead of what we could say is the primary means, some of us are in this second situation, which I'm going to call secondary means. If you did not get the sampling of the Heavenly Father in your home, does that mean you're sunk? Of course not. You see, you have a desire for a father, a father that brings life and not hailstones. It's a deep desire we all have, and you have such a father. And even though the handoff was a little rough and there was a few fumbled balls in the meantime, you have a Heavenly Father who loves you and wants to fill that role in your life. So this is how it works. It's the intervention of the Holy Spirit to show you as a child, me as a child, that though our earthly father was pathetically incomplete, that our heavenly father is eager to adopt us as his own and to fill the role of the perfect father in our life. We actually are not lacking right now. We could cluck our tongue at the earthly side of our life and the earthly impressions that we have received, but we also have the potential to go straight to our Heavenly Father, and it's pretty special, the avenue that was created through the shed blood of Jesus. There's a way that has been made, and our Father in Heaven is good, 
and he doesn't send hailstones on the righteous. Those that are clothed in him, those that are his children, there is a grace, there is a covering. There is such a mercy that he wants to give to us. And he wants to express to us our identity so that we are not confused over this. He wants to express to us our value so that we understand that we are worth the shed blood of Jesus, not because of our behavior that it was perfect, that he loves us, but he loves us. He just plain loves us. And he wants to show us how to handle our imperfections too, that he isn't coming down with the strong hand of judgment because we mowed a line incorrectly or missed a gap in the lawn as we were mowing or missed that weed and we didn't pull it. That God doesn't have the strong hand of judgment in those moments, but that doesn't mean he doesn't correct us. He just corrects us probably a little better than an earthly father may have. But he still corrects us because he still desires us to produce excellence in our life. But he does it with such gentleness and grace that we can smile even as he's over our shoulder saying, okay, how about that one? Hey, it looks like we missed a spot over here. Boy, if all of us were to watch God as a father uh, for a little bit, all of us as fathers would be like, oh boy. There's, uh, I always feel that when I watch Little House on the Prairie and Michael Land- the Michael Landon character, he always handles every situation. Because in, in the situation, I'm like, uh-oh, uh-oh, I, I feel my heat rising. If that was happening in my house and my kids you know, started to burn down the building, I would be, you know, have a little uh, heat inside of my soul. Instead, he always seems to have the right response. So what is this, scripted Hollywood? Oh, it is, okay. <laughs> However, there is something when you see it, it's inspiring. It really is. Some of us just need to be reminded that God wants to elevate our game as fathers. He wants us to take this job very seriously. And if any of us in this room are in the position where we just need to clarify with our tongue, to just walk through some of these issues and say, hey, let's walk through each one of these. I want my kids to know the distinction between me as an earthly father and God as their heavenly father. The perfect storm, isn't that a great name for a father? We're supposed to be the perfect storm. Jesus was the perfect storm. By the way, that, that's usually a very different meaning uh, than the way I'm using it here. Perfect storm means like the ultimate storm is going to probably create chaos, right? But that's not the way I'm using it. This is the perfect storm to create life. Learning to choose the better part for your children. As a father, here's, here's the illustration. Mary and Martha. Martha, Martha. Martha is like an earthly father where she has all her priorities straight. She has the house, you know, the way we want it. The garage is going to be clean. The tools are set up this way. The, you know, hose is wrapped this way. The lawn is mowed this way. And she's right. Is it not right to set the table to make sure the roast is cooked properly? Jesus is coming for a visit. Is it not a good thing? It is. However, what that story teaches us is that there's something even greater. And that's where most of us as earthly fathers need to just have a fresh reminder. That there is something even greater, and that's the relationship we have with our kids. That's the heart of our kids, that we don't want to lose it to get a straight line in, in the lawn or to keep all our tools in the right place. And believe me, though, that's a sensitivity point. I don't know if any of you are like that. Fathers, where you get all your tools in one place and suddenly they're all missing. Where are my tools? Okay, I'm not going to go there, though. I'm saying that God knows the value of the heart of a child more than the tools all being in the right spot. It does not mean it's not correct what Martha's doing. It's just that it's a better thing 
that Mary is doing. And for all of us just to be freshly reminded that there's a better thing to focus on than just getting the roast cooked properly and the table set perfectly to be hospitable for Jesus, but that we want to love Jesus well. And we want to love our kids well. Father, I pray that you would take these words and that you would use them in our lives. Lord, that we would not leave as we arrived, but that every single one of us would hear your word spoken to our souls today, and that there would be healing, restoration. And Lord, I pray for a, a return of great fatherhood to this generation. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.